What is up, guys? Welcome back to In The Gap Cast. Glad to have you here. If you haven't done it already, you can check us out on our other socials at Instagram. Our at is In The Gap Cast. Same thing on TikTok as well. If you want to shoot over, give us some love. Maybe send us a DM. Give us some feedback on the content. Ask some questions as well. We got a Q&A coming up on the episode. Today, we're going to be answering the question, does God hate? What does that look like? We will see as we get into it. As always, we are praying that you guys are standing in the gap between the world and the truth, between what Jesus Christ came down to set before us and what the world is constantly yelling at us to do. So as we move into this, guys, does God hate? It is extremely important that we break this question down and talk about it from a logistical standpoint. First, we have to break down who is God in this situation, right? And what are some of the characteristics of God that are extremely important to understanding the answer to this question? So something I think that doesn't get said enough today that I want to start off by saying is the God we worship in the Bible of the Christian faith is an immutable God. It is God that does not change. He's the same yesterday. He is the same today. And he is the same tomorrow. There is no change in the God that we worship in the Bible from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of Revelation, right? Next is our God is perfect in all of his ways. We can find this listed in Psalms 145, 17, Psalms 18, 30, Deuteronomy 32, 4, and Jude 115 as well, that he is perfect in all of his ways. And what's extremely important that we note in the perfection in all of his ways is that that includes love. Yes, that includes grace. Yes, that includes mercy absolutely that includes justiceness righteousness and even his wrath it is all those things he must be perfect in all of his ways in order to be god correct i mean after all who would worship a god that isn't perfect in all of his ways and luckily for us we worship a god that is indeed perfect in all of his ways now we must move on to what is hate And I went to the Google definition of this to figure out what the world thinks hate is so I can answer this from a perspective of what are the majority of people going to define as hate. And hate is an intense or passionate dislike, a loathing for something or someone. And here's some Bible verses in which the word hate is used literally. Psalms 11.5 states that the Lord's soul hates the wicked. Proverbs 8.13 states that the fear of God should lead to the hatred of evil. Isaiah 61 8 states that I hate wrongdoing. That is what God, God says, I hate wrongdoing. Very plainly. Psalm 5 5. David is saying, Lord, you hate all evildoers. Something that I wanted to break down very specifically is Proverbs 6 16 through 19, and I'm going to read it for you guys right now. There are six things that the Lord hates. No, there are seven things he detests. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that kill the innocent, a heart that plots evil, feet that race to do wrong, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who sows discord in a family. Does God hate? Well, according to his own perfect word, yes. Yes, he does. He does hate. And it's important to mention that everything he listed in his hatred was wrongdoing evildoers, the wicked. And then he gave a list of seven things, and all of those stemmed 
from an evil heart. It stemmed from iniquity. It stemmed from sin. It stemmed from sin. Um, so not once is there a statement that God hates a certain person. It's God hates a quality. God hates an attribute to a person that they have chosen to walk in. God hates the fact that a person has chosen to walk in their flesh and be a slave to their flesh and in essence be a slave to sin as we are born into sin. We are, we are born into iniquity by being born into our flesh. Then comes the very, very hard thing to grasp, especially with our progressive Christianity we see today and the postmodernism that is running around our streets rampant and especially the universalism that is going around. Uh, thank you, Robert Bell. Just kidding. Um, with love must come the hatred for was an abomination of love. I'm going to make these claims before I defend them. With justice must come a hatred for injustice for it to be perfect, right? With righteousness comes a hatred for iniquity. There's a hatred for the opposite of what it is. And first I want to talk about love because it's extremely important that we establish the world's definition of the opposite of love versus a biblical definition of the opposite of love. The world will tell you the opposite of love is hate. And I will disagree with that. Hate is its own thing. I'm not saying that hate is in opposition to love, but hate is not the direct opposite of love. Um, Hatred would inquire the love for yourself because everything you would be doing is selfish, and that is a love for yourself, your desires, your wants, your wills. Um, The opposite of love is anything that walks outside of God's realm and God's definition of love that is an abomination of love and what God intended love to be. So with our progressive Christianity we have today, our postmodernism we have today, we've got a lot of abominations of what God defined as love. We got a lot of people who are out there not wanting to offend somebody, right? We got a lot of people out there who are seeking to protect their own reputation. And immediately right there, you, you walk away from 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, where it says love does not seek for its own good. And then as well as love does not rejoice in iniquity, right? Our, our world is so keen at not labeling a sin as a sin because it could offend somebody. People people have the dualistic statement of if I love them, I can't call a sin a sin, and that's completely wrong. So an abomination of love is the opposite of love, not hatred. Hatred is a love for yourself. With justice comes a hatred for injustice. Now this begs the question, if God's perfectly just, yet we are born into sin, we are born into iniquity, and the wages of that are death, how can he justly Open the gates of heaven for us. And this is where the beauty of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ was on the cross comes into play heavily, so heavily. Jesus Christ was the penal substitution for us. He bore the weight of our sin and our transgression and took the sentencing of death that we owed to God upon himself on the cross and hung it there. You see, God's perfect justice had to be enacted. It had to be fulfilled in order for him to be perfect in all his ways, and it was. And what's super, super important to know exactly why it had to be Jesus Christ is when a sacrifice was given to the Lord under Mosaic and ceremonial law, it had to be a spotless lamb. It had to be a lamb 
without blemish. So in order for it to be the proper sacrifice for the atonement of our sins, it had to be a lamb without blemish. Jesus Christ was the only lamb without blemish. You see the difference between me dying for my faith and Jesus dying for for his faith. I'm a martyr. He's a penal substitution in the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb prophesied in the Old Testament. He is the sacrificial lamb without blemish, without spot. In that, immediately, you have justification of it. Because he bore all the sin on his shoulders, all the transgressions, all the guilt, all the shame, everything that we owed because of our sinful ways, he bore it on his shoulders and he hung on the cross for us. Next, we go on to the, with the righteousness of God comes the hatred for iniquity. Well, how can God allow people who are living in iniquity because we are born into our flesh and, you know, even when, when we become a new creation, as it says in Second Corinthians 5, we still are at war with our flesh, as it states in Romans, that that battle is ongoing and it never ends. We are always at war with our flesh, but now it is the war of the spirit and the flesh because we become a new creation, because we have confessed with our mouth and believed with our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Holy Spirit has now filled us, and the Holy Spirit is warring on our behalf. But we still have the free will to choose to sin, to choose to walk in something that is an abomination to the Lord. We have that free will. So we choose to walk in the flesh. We're choosing to walk in our own power, right? We choose to walk in the Spirit. We're choosing to let Jesus Christ, who's sitting at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf, fight our battles for us. But... We're still full of iniquity, right? So God's righteousness has to be fulfilled somehow, some way, and it was. And it was through Jesus Christ the same way that his justice was fulfilled. You see, someone needed to pay the debt of sin, so Jesus paid the debt of sin. He paid the wages of sin, which are death. But the righteousness of God has to be fulfilled as well, because if it was righteous of God, there needs to be proper compensation in the dealing of that justice. And there was because Jesus hung on that cross and drank from the cup of wrath that we were owed. Being fully God and fully man, he took on the flesh and walked as the flesh and lived as the flesh while having the perfect spirit of God inside of him. He was a man without sin, yet he drank from the cup of wrath of God for hours until the very moment when the cup of wrath had been completely spilled out, he said, it is finished. And when he said it is finished, it was done. And what that means by it was done was that love had won. God's perfect love had won because Jesus Christ came to fulfill his justice and his righteousness and his wrath all in the same moment, all in the same action, all in the same event of the crucifixion hanging on the cross is where we see the fulfillment of God's perfect righteousness, his perfect justice, and his perfect wrath. See, they were all justified. Everything, every ounce of wrath is justified. God created us for his pleasure, an intimate relationship. God created us for a loving and intimate relationship with him, and we, as humanity, turned our backs on him and continue to do that daily. His wrath is justified. His righteousness is is justified in the sense that he is perfect in all his ways by itself. He, he knows no sin. God is without sin. God is, God is perfectly set aside from anything that isn't good. 
God's righteousness doesn't need my verbal justification. It's justified in his word. And we find it in his word, in his actions, in his speech, in the prophecies he gives to the prophets, in the ways that Jesus Christ walked on this earth and treated us and treated the least of us, right? But here, here's, here's the tricky part. God doesn't hate people, right? God doesn't hate people. Um, how can he be perfectly loving but still claim to have a hatred for people? And here, here is my answer to that. Does, does God hate people? Absolutely not. I will never stand by that claim. Never. God hates the actions of a sinful heart. God hates the result of a wicked heart full of iniquity. Because it's not what we were created for. It is an abomination of his original intent for our creation, but he had to give us free will if he was to be perfect, correct? So in that sense, we find exactly what we were created for, why we were created, and who we were created by, and the essence of it all, by using the Old Testament in regards to the New Testament as well. 1,500 plus years apart, right? We find the simplest answer out there. Genesis 1.26, we are created in the likeness of the image of God. What is the image of God? What is God? Well, in 1 John 4, 8, and 16, it states that God is love, right? So we are created in the likeness of the image of God. God created us for his pleasure, right? If we're created in his, in his image for his pleasure, we are created for love, right? We are created in his image. We are created in love and for love. And we are created by God, which is the essence of love. We are created in love, for love, and by love. So of course, there's not a hatred for his own creation that was created under the blanket statement of in love, for love, and by love. And this is scripturally backed up as well, that we are created. This is not some motivational quote that you see, right? It's not, it's not a preacher's verse. It is legitimate biblical statement that we were created in love by love and for love and that is extremely extremely important in the understanding that god doesn't hate people he hates sin he hates iniquity and he loves us so much he loved us and loves us continually to this day so much that he was willing to send his only son his only son, to walk the earth as the flesh, to be persecuted in the flesh, to be subject to all of the attacks that could harm the flesh, to be tortured and murdered so that he could fulfill his own righteousness, his own justice, and extend the grace, love, and mercy towards us, right? You look at, you look at the, the large grand scheme of things, in all of this. And, and in, the, in the middle of it, right, we have the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice. And, and the, but the, the driving force behind the sacrifice, right, is love, grace, and mercy. And then the end result of that sacrifice is love, grace, and mercy. And in the process, since he is a perfect God, there's already been an established sense of his perfection in all ways, including justice, righteousness, and wrath. So in the process of going from point A to point B to where it is a statement versus where it is 
actually something extended to us is we see the outpouring and the fulfillment of all those things through Jesus Christ, our penal substitution, the one who came and bore the weight of the sentence of death that we deserved. And I'm going to keep restating that because it is so important that we understand we are nothing apart from him. Bryce Stamey stated this amazingly. Bryce, if you ever hear this, shout out to you for this. Without us, God is God. Without God, we are nothing. Without us, God is still the Alpha and the Omega, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, Jehovah Jireh. Without God, we're dust. We're dust that sins. We are absolutely nothing without him. Nothing. And that is so important that our culture can grasp today in this progressive Christianity stuff and all this postmodernism and universalism running around, rampant in our streets under the blanket of, of Christianity and under the false impression that this is what Jesus Christ is. No, there needs to be a proper reverence for who God is, and he is perfect in all of his ways. And in the fulfillment and the way that he fulfilled his righteousness, his justice, and his wrath, the way that he fulfilled that amplifies how much he loves us, how gracious he is towards us, and how merciful his intentions for us are. Guys, we are born into sin, yet somehow have the opportunity to spend an eternity in grace, peace, mercy, love, in worship with fellow believers, in fellowship, in the community of God, yet we are born into sin, born of the flesh, born into iniquity, subject to the lusts of our flesh, to the desires of our flesh, because until we are a bondservant to the righteousness of God, we are a slave to our flesh, we are a slave to our desires, we are a slave to sin. And then, when you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, he renews your mind. He renews your mind. And then, all of a sudden, you become a bondservant to the righteousness of God. And I think it's important to understand everybody freaks out at the word slave or bondservant. A bondservant is a choice. A bondservant is someone who chose to give the service of their life over to another. You become a bondservant to the righteousness of God because God gave you free will and you chose to give your life, your desires, and your will and leave it at the foot of the cross and say, Lord, thy will be done. In and through my life, thy will be done. I now subject myself to your will for my life and only your will for my life. And every day, I will rely upon your strength and your mercies because I cannot do this myself. And I need you to intercede on my behalf as I know you are, as you told me that you are. Every single day until we come home. Our home is not this earth because this earth is currently under the rule of the prince of darkness and his name is Satan. And if you don't believe me, go back to when Jesus is tempted. First was tempted with bread and then he brings it out to the mountain. He says, look at all this. Look at everything here. I can give you all of this. I can give you all of this. And you know what's crazy about this? The Bible's not coincidental, right? It's not coincidental at all. Everything is in there for a reason in the way that it's in there, in the verbiage that it's in there. Jesus doesn't deny it. Jesus does not once deny that Satan has the ability to give him everything he sees before him. Because when sin entered this world, the title deed to this earth was given over to Satan for a time. It's for a numbered time. But yes, as of right now, Satan is the prince of darkness, but also the prince of this world. And he can be shown throughout the Old Testament when you look at Job. Satan's just up in heaven talking to God. And God says, have you seen my servant Job? And Satan says, yeah, but he's got everything. Who wouldn't want to worship you when they've got everything? 
And he says, do your worst, but you cannot harm him. You, you cannot kill him because he could harm him. You could not kill him, right? So Satan at this point has free reign, right? He's, he's still going up and having conversations with God himself. Satan's got free reign right now. But what happened when Jesus paid that price on the cross for us is the title deed to our lives was therefore removed out of the hands of the prince of darkness and put back into the hands of the prince of peace. We are not subject to be a slave to our flesh for our, for our eternity anymore, a slave to sin for eternity. No, now we have the opportunity to make the choice to confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts and sign our name on the title deed, giving our entire life in service to God, choosingly and willingly. And there is no higher call on this earth. No one can convince me of that. And people go on to this question all the time. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And first, you've got to break that down moralistically and logistically and say there's no good people. Paul states it very clear. No good thing dwells in me. There's, there's no good thing in us except for when we have the Holy Spirit in us, and that is the only good thing. Everything apart from the Holy Spirit is, is evil. It is gross. It is disgusting. I'm sorry if that offends you, but it's, it's biblical truth. It is the same for me as it is you. There's no good thing that dwells in us. But when sin entered the world through one man, you see, the, the actions that would follow we're all subject to free will. Yes, they're all going to fall in line with God's plan, exactly how he had it set before creation. Yes, but now every man has the free will to choose to walk in his flesh or to choose to walk in the spirit of God. So why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? First off, there are no good people. Those don't exist. Secondly, the bad things are brought about by sinful nature. Right, And everybody makes the claim, you don't need a God to be moral. And it's like, oh, okay, okay. Well, then you'd say, would you say rape is evil? And Ravi Zacharias does this amazing. He said, would you say rape is evil? Well, yes. Well, then if you're assuming that there's evil, you're assuming that there's good. If you're assuming that there's good, you assume that there's a moral law. If you assume that there's a moral law, there has to be a moral law giver. What's your answer for who the moral law giver is? Because history and my Bible all point to it being the God of creation, the Alpha and the Omega. You see, there is no justification of morality outside of God. We only know what good is because of God. And we know what sin is because of the law that God set before us. You see, the law in Romans 7 is very clearly determined as to expose our own sin to us so that we know what sin is, so that we can search our hearts, ask the Lord to search our hearts and to cleanse us, and to cleanse our hearts. And it's a daily process, guys. We're never going to be perfectly without sin on this earth. But see, just as God displays and amplifies what is good, the law that God set before us amplifies and shows what sin is. With, without that, the United States of America does not have a moral law. Without that, we cannot deem anything as evil because we have no basis to call it evil because we have no basis of what is good. And it is very simple that, that with good comes evil because of sin. What is the opposition of sin? It is God. So where does all good come from? It is God and God alone. Where does all sin come from? It is evil. It comes from the prince of darkness. It comes from Satan. You see, good and evil both derive from the start of this world. There's only one answer to that, and that's God. So circle it back around. Does God 
hate. Absolutely. Absolutely, firmly, I will stand by that till the day I die. God hates evil. God hates what is not of the Spirit. God hates wickedness. God hates iniquity. But His grace is sufficient to cover our sins. His grace is sufficient for us. He is enough. He is absolutely enough. Jesus Christ coming down, being offered as the sacrificial lamb, allowed us the opportunity to accept the extended hand full of grace, mercy, and love. And it is as simple as that. It doesn't need to be overcomplicated, guys. Does God hate stuff? Yes, he hates what is evil. He hates what is iniquity. He hates what is sin. He hates what is wicked. But his grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient for me. It's sufficient for you. And it's sufficient for every single person on this earth. Atheist, agnostic, Muslim, Roman Catholic, any religion. His grace is sufficient enough for all of us. Should we? Confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord. We serve a perfect God, guys. We serve a perfect God who's perfect in all of his ways, and I'm so thankful for that because what kind of a God would we be worshiping if he wasn't perfect in all of his ways? What kind of a God would that be? But thankfully, we don't even have to worry about it because the God of the Bible, the God of the Christian faith, the God of Paul, the God of John, the God of Moses, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaiah, Ezekiel, David, all these powerhouses listed is the same God, the same God that turned a man who would throw his wife under the bus into a tank of a leader, the same God that would turn a murderer of Christians into the greatest missionary we would ever see on this earth, the same God that turned a fisherman who was bulldozing people with truth completely apart from love to turn into the apostle known for his love, the same God who turned a fisherman who couldn't get his foot out of his mouth into the greatest public speaker of the Christian faith to this day baptizing 3,000 in one day. The same God who turned them around is the same God who is longing for an intimate and loving relationship with you. He is longing for it. Evil is in this world, yes, and he hates what is evil, and his heart breaks. when he does, You guys, we got to understand that God's not sitting up there when we're walking in evil and walking in the ways of the flesh and walking in sin, we got to understand that God's not sitting up there going, eh, I don't care. No, his heart breaks. It, he, he hurts. He hurts. It, it's not something he enjoys seeing. It's not something he can also turn a blind eye to, guys. Our God is, is grieved by our choices to walk in the flesh and walk in the sin. But you see, he can take that and he can turn it to good. It says he's working all things together for our good. All things in Romans 8. And in that same chapter, God reminds us that he's working all things together for our good. Not only this, he states that he's inter- the Holy Spirit's interceding on our behalf. Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God. And he closes it by saying no height, nor depth, nor principalities can separate us from the love of God of God through Jesus Christ. Nothing, guys. 
because of Jesus Christ's sacrifice, because of the penal substitution, nothing can separate us from the love of God. No height, no depth, no principalities, no law. No principalities means no law. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. How amazing is that? A God who was perfectly just, perfectly righteous, and had a perfectly righteous wrath, a perfect wrath, found ways, found a way, the only way, sorry, did not mean to say ways, found the only way to fulfill those so that he could extend a perfect grace, a perfect mercy, and a perfect love to the people that he created in love, by love, and for love eternally. And I'm going to leave you guys with that. I love you all. And please, 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 I pray with you. I pray for you. I plead with you and pray for you that we be the revival that we seek. Everybody throws the term around. Everybody throws the term revival around, and yet we never see it come to fruition, and it starts with us. It starts from one viewer to the next, to the next, to the next. Reach out to somebody. Tell somebody about the gospel. Tell somebody what God is doing in your life. Share the gospel with people who've never heard it before. Bring it to the streets. I don't care what you have to do. Evangelize. Go bring the truth of God in love to the nations, guys. Revival starts with us. It starts with one person. It doesn't start with, okay, we got to get a thousand followers on a social media platform. Then I can have an influence. No, influence right where you're at. You don't need to be an influencer to have influence. Revival starts in the belief that you can be just like Andrew and in changing one soul, just, just bringing one soul to Jesus Christ can have an effect of 3,000. Andrew brought, brought Peter to Christ, and that effect was thousands saved because Andrew brought one person. Not everybody's going to be Peter. Not everybody's going to be John. Not everybody's going to be James. Some of us are going to be James the less. Some of us are going to be Andrews. But I pray that we all have a heart like Andrew where we go seek the one person even if it's just one that we bring to Christ, we have that mindset. Even if it's just one, it is enough. It is sufficient. I will bring one at a time. One person, one heart change can change so many. I want to give you guys a little story to end off here. There was a preacher, and he was, he was, he was giving his message to, to 5,000. There was 5,000 in attendance. He was giving his message. And he was spreading the gospel. He was spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ and the true gospel, the full gospel, the, the harshest, harshest realities and the deepest truths and love and grace and mercy, all of it. And at the end, there was an altar call. And one person walked forward. Only one of the 5,000 that day decided to give his life to Jesus. Only one of the 5,000 decided to give his life to Jesus. And that one person's name was Ravi Zacharias. There's not a single Christian in the United States of America who does not know that name. Because of one person, one person walked forward by this man's preaching, Ravi Zacharias went on to have an impact that I would dare say reaches the tens of millions. One man, one heart, one God, one love. That's all it takes. I love you guys. Let's stand in that gap and stand firmly, stand boldly in truth, yet graciously in love. Have a great day, guys.